Good morning. We appreciate you guys being here today. And as Bob uh, said, uh, we invite you back for the Christmas Eve services. Invite someone uh, that you've been praying for that's a neighbor or family or friend that doesn't have a church home. And uh, we encourage you to, to bring them with you. If you take your programs and look and find this sheet, Church Engagement Survey, we're going to go over this again because we want everyone to make sure we're on the same page with this thing. First thing I want to show you on the front is a net promoter score. Uh, ours is a 56. We get that from taking the results that you gave us, 1,300 of you, responded to a survey. There were three questions. The question was, would you invite someone to the Bible chapel? And you could give a range from one to 10. If you gave a nine or a 10, that's one score. 68% of you did that. 20% an eight or uh, seven or eight. And then uh, 12% one through six. We took the 12% and subtracted it from the 68 uh, uh, yeah, from the 68 and threw out the 20% and we came up with the pr net promoter score of 56. In business, that's fantastic. Anything over 50 in business is excellent. In a church, we need around a 70. We're shooting for a 70. So we have work to do. And we have some comments from you. 1,300 of you gave your feedback. We appreciate that. We had a team go through every comment and started looking for themes or what we call echoes. What were the things we heard over and over again? Put those down, the elders, the leadership team, and those involved in that process got together with a consultant and prayerfully went through uh, those responses, the echoes of the responses, and determined from that, through a process, three major goals that we'll be sharing with you on January 5 and 6. Three major goals shared with you on January 5 and 6. Now, here's the second step. You've already given your input on January 14th, 15th, or 20th. On January 14th, it's going to be in the evening around 6.30. We'll get you the times on this. On January 15th, it's a Tuesday morning around 9. And then after church on Sunday the 20th. One of those times, we're asking you to come to one of those times. Not all of them, but one of them. It'll be interactive. And uh, we ask you to come and be a part of that. And what we'll be doing during that time is to share with you those three major goals from the input we got from you. And you'll be able to say that's clear. We get it. Uh, we can sand some things off. We can take off any rough edges. We can make it crisper in its uh, language. But we'll get your feedback from that. But that portion of that is to hear the goals from your responses and clarify them. Then on February the 22nd, February the 22nd is a Friday from 9 to 5. Our consultants said <clears throat> people would rather take a day off than give up their weekend. I don't know if that's true for Pittsburgh. We're going to find out. Uh, so Friday, uh, 9 to 5, and the purpose of that meeting, so we've gotten your responses, 1,300 of them. We looked at the echoes. We have goals from that. We're going to clarify the goals in these three meetings. Then on February the 22nd, we're looking for strategies. How are we going to get these things done? What are we going to do? We're going to have workshops all day long to figure out where we're going to go with these. What are we going to do? Does that make sense? All on the same page? So we're going to ask you to just fold and tear off this little sheet at the bottom of the church engagement survey 
and mark your name and your email and your phone and what day you'd like to come. Again, the, uh, January 14th around 6.30, January 15th, 9 in the morning, January 20, right after church. If you're doing the January 14th and evening, Monday evening, then turn over that little sheet over and write the names of your, if you have children, write the names of children on the back, their ages that would, would need child care during that time, okay? You can drop this off, then right in that basket as you leave today. We'll make it as easy as possible. Drop it off, and uh, we will then know how many cookies to get for Monday night, how many bagels to get for Tuesday morning, and a little light lunch for Sunday, okay? All right. Thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for what you're doing at our church. Thank you, Father, for the, for, the, for the great responses we got and challenges we have before us, too. We thank you, Lord, that you are at work uh, in our church, and we thank you that you're working our lives, each of us. Lord, you know intimately, and you have a plan for us. We're going to talk about that today. And I pray, Father, that you would speak uh, clearly to us, what, whatever stage of life we're in, whatever age we are, I pray, Father, that today would be that day when we know what you have put us on this earth to do and that we would be about that business. Be with us, Lord, as we look at your word. Open our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so if I ask you, what is the most well-known verse in all of the Bible you would say, just in unison, just like that. No cues, right? John 3.16. And this is not only the most well-known verse in the Bible. If you go to a football game, you will see John 3.16 right behind the goalpost. If you go to see Tim Tebow's Google picture, you will see underneath his eye black when he was in college, John 3.16. If you go to a baseball game, you will see John 3.16 right above Taco Bell. If, if you go to In-N-Out Burger, I can't wait till they get here. You'll see John 3.16 written on their cups. And if you go to my favorite place to shop, Forever 21. I'm kidding. I am kidding about that. John 3.16 right on the bag. And if you get an autograph sometime, no, we're not there yet, but license plates. John 3.16, and if you get an autograph sometime, if you were lucky enough to get an autograph of Mariano Rivera, who was up for the Hall of Fame in 2019, will be a first ballot Hall of Famer, he put, he's from Panama too, he put John 3.16 right on his autograph. It's all over the place, right? John 3.16, okay, that's an easy one. Second question. If John 3.16 is the most well-known passage in Scripture, what is, don't say it yet, what is the second most well-known passage in Scripture? Ready? Go. And there wasn't as much agreement on that one now, was there? Everyone might think of their second favorite one. But I'm going to say for our study today that one at least that's pretty well-known, if you're around church, you grew up in church, been around church for a while, is Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of your 
own doing. It is a gift of God, not a work so that no one can boast. Right here in that little verse is the gospel, right in one verse. Check it out. For by grace, that whether you're in the Old Testament or New Testament, grace is always the basis for salvation. It's got to be a gift because we can't earn it on our own, as the verse explains to us. You have been saved through faith. Faith is always the means of salvation, wherever you are. And the object of salvation is who? Object is all, Old Testament or New, is always the person of Jesus. By grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's a gift so that none of us can boast. Now, what happens a lot of the times when we have favorite verses, like John 3.16, then no one really knows what John 15 or what John 17 says. And so it is with, John, with Ephesians 8 9. We pull it out to share the gospel as well, as well we should. But we often forget that a significant passage comes right after Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and that is Ephesians 2.10. Check this out. For by grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not a work so no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship. I love that word. We are God's work of art. Think of a painter painstakingly painting this beautiful masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. You feel like that? That's who you are. Significant, secure, accepted, forgiven, empowered. You are, regardless of how you're feeling today, regardless of what you think about when you look in the mirror, if you're a believer, you are God's masterpiece. And you were created. You didn't (laughs) create yourself. God created you. He recreated you. In Christ Jesus, the object of our salvation. For a reason. For a why. He created you for good works. He has great things for us to do. And these works were not some second thought that he had. He didn't create you and then say, what in the world am I going to do with that person? (coughs) The works that he created, he had already prepared. He prepared beforehand. He already had them ready. He knew in his eternal mind that you were going to be his child. He was going to create you in Christ Jesus. And he had good works for you to do that he prepared beforehand. And what's left? We've got to get them done. We've got to walk in them. So here's a question I, I, I want to ask you today. What are the good works? Two questions. What are the good works that God has prepared for you to do? It says it right there that, that he, he has them. What are the good works that God has prepared for you to do? You're a college student. You've got to get that one figured out, don't you? You've got your whole life to get them done. You're in your 20s, 30s, you've got to figure that out. You've got a good time to get them done. You're in your 40s, 50s, it's getting tighter. <laughs> but you've got to make sure you get them figured out to get those things done. Here's the second question. What are they? Second question, what 
are you doing? Are you doing? Are you doing the good works that God prepared for you and placed you on this planet to get done? Do you know what they are? And are you doing the good works that he prepared in advance for you, his masterpiece, to do? This Christmas, we are looking at a series called Unselfish Christmas. We're focusing on Jesus. We're trying to get the distractions away from Christmas 2018. We focus on Jesus so far, and we've seen his uh, unselfish uh, leadership, his unselfish service, and today we want to see his unselfish direction, his mission on earth, the road that the Father prepared in advance for Jesus to travel. John, Ephesians 2.10 applies to Jesus just as it applies to us. So take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 5. We'll work our way through this passage, then I have four points of application. John chapter 5, I'll set the context. The gospel writer John has already told us in John chapter 1 through 4 that in the beginning was the Word, right, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God from the beginning. In Him all things are made, and without Him nothing has made that has been made. He's God. And so John starts his gospel by telling us that right off the bat. Now, in John chapter 5, in the first part of the book, Jesus is going around, and he goes to the pool of Bethesda there in uh, Jerusalem, and he sees a man who had been down on a mat for 38 years. Think about that. This guy had been an invalid for 38 years. Jesus goes, and he tells him to get up, take up his mat, and walk. The guy does that. And the cool thing was that he healed the guy, but the challenge for the religious leaders was that it happened on what day? The Sabbath. And they didn't like things to happen on the Sabbath. If you were a, a, a if you follow Judaism, uh, there was not only the Old Testament law, but there was the Talmud, the Talmud that was a commentary on the Old Testament law, a whole section on the Sabbath that told you what you could and couldn't do, most of what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. One thing for sure, you couldn't walk with your mat. And so we see in verse 16, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Notice how Jesus responds in the next verse. But Jesus answered, my father is working until now, and I am working. Two significant things there that Jesus does. First of all, he says, my father, equating himself with God. That's pretty significant. My father. He is on par with God. The second thing he says is, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, the Jews couldn't argue with that, and here's why. They knew from the Old Testament that God rested on the seventh day, right? But they also knew that God was the one who held every planet in orbit. If God actually took a break, the world would collapse. So God never really rested. God, in a sense, was always working. So Jesus says two things. I am God, and that's why I can work on the Sabbath, because I've never stopped working. I don't take a day off. Now, the Jews were a little upset about the healing on the Sabbath, but they were really upset that Jesus had made himself equal to God. So, in verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that was bad enough. 
but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This, was a, this is what was called the sin of the high hand. This was the worst of the worst. This was blasphemy. He said he was God. So the Sabbath was bad enough, but he's God. So Jesus says in verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, by the way, uh, truly, truly in the Greek is amen. Amen, amen, or truthfully, truthfully. Uh, in John, this happens 25 times. And anytime you see truly, truly, you just get out your highlighter because you're going to highlight whatever's said next. Every part of Scripture, every word of Scripture is inspired by God, and we take it seriously and we obey it. When Jesus says truly, truly, it's like, okay, time out, stop. I really got to get this. Jesus said, truly, truly, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, and whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Just think what Jesus has said. I am equal to God. He is my Father. By the way, if anyone tells you Jesus never said uh, he, he was equal to God, that just tells you that they never have read the New Testament. Because Jesus says that all the time. He says it right here. I am equal to God. But he also says, interestingly, he also says, the Son of Man can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. You think this, it was cool that I raised this guy uh, who had been uh, an invalid for 38 years? Wait till I get to chapter 11. I'm going to raise a guy from the dead. And then I'm going to raise from the dead. Now think about what Jesus is saying here. This uh, passage gives us two, in theology, sometimes called the, the two persona of Jesus. Jesus is, at the same time, fully God, right, and fully man. Fully God and fully man. When he became a man, he lost none of his deity, He's God, and he loses none of his humanity. And that's been debated in theology for a long, long, long time, ever since it was written. A lot of people will focus on one or the other, and then that leads to error. So they'll focus on Jesus' deity and play down his humanity, and, and that does disservice to the cross. Others will play up his humanity and, and play down his deity, and that does disservice to his person. When we talk about Jesus, he is unique. We can't say Jesus is like so-and-so because there's no one like him. He's the only one fully God and fully man. And it has to be Jesus. That's why he can say, I'm the only one. I'm the only way to God. Not a good way, not one of the many ways, but I'm it. Because his full deity allows him to be sinless and allows him to be the perfect substitute for our sin we can't die for our own sin we have we can't die for another person's sin we can only die for our own sin and so Jesus has to be fully God so he doesn't have to die for his own sin he can die for ours but he all since he's going to die for our sin he also has to be what fully man to be our substitute only Jesus no other religious leader no other philosophy. Only Jesus, fully God, fully man, can die on the cross 
for our sins. Only Jesus can pay the penalty for sin. And here's what Jesus says. I'm fully God. Think about what he's saying in this verse. I'm fully God, and yet I will only do what? I'll only do what the Father tells me to do. Now, how does that apply to us? Think about that. First of all, we're not God. We might pretend to be sometimes. But how highly we think of ourselves. Jesus was God. And he says, I was put on this earth to do what the Father told me to do. I will only do what the Father tells me to do. At great sacrifice. At great pain. I was put here for a mission. And that's the mission I will accomplish. Now, Jesus is our Savior and our model and our leader, right? Can we say those same things? I was put here for a reason. I am God's work of art, his masterpiece. He created me in Christ Jesus to do the good works that he prepared in advance for me to do. Am I willing to sacrifice whatever I think my life should be about to go about the Father's business? Am I willing to do the things that God put me on this earth to do? Jesus says in verse 22, the father judges no one, but he has given me judgment, judgment to the son. He says, another task, assignment God has given me is to be the judge. And then he says in this amazing passage, verse 20, uh, 24, let's look at that. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 24. Let's check this out. Truly, truly, so you get your highlighter out, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me. So whoever's a believer, who's ever a, who's ever a Christian. He, that person, has eternal life. Not that person will have eternal life when they die. Like right now, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, on December the 16th, 2018, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you are living the eternal life. Now, why is that important? Because some people say, well, you know, I'm kind of here on the earth and I kind of am kind of, I'm broken and I'm kind of, you know, meandering around. But one day when I die, I'm going to have eternal life. No, you've got it now. You are broken, but you've been redeemed. Jesus came to fix us, and we can live and experience and enjoy the eternal life right now. We're not here just to meander around for 70 or 80 or 90 years, and then we get to heaven. We are living the eternal life now. Jesus said, you've got it. It's yours. You have eternal life. Just think about that. Let that soak in. We're not waiting for it. We've got it. That should change our perspective. That should change the way we look at things. And Jesus says, this person, a believer, is not coming to judgment. We don't have to worry about the judgment. We're free from that. This gift we have allows us not to be judged by Jesus. Jesus has already been judged for us. But this person has passed or crossed over, the NIV says, or the New Living Translation says, has already passed over from death to life. Now, a lot of times we think that is referring to physical death to eternal life, right? And that's, 
That's a true statement. Many passages of Scripture talk about that. But this passage right here is speaking of spiritual death and spiritual life. Right now. It's not heaven. It's right now. This past is in a Greek tense, the perfect tense. If you're an English major, you know. That means past action, present results. So it happened in the past, but it still has continuing results. So there was a time in your life, maybe you were 12, maybe it was last week, maybe you were in your 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s or or 80s, I don't know, but there was a time when Jesus interrupted your life, he opened your heart to see him, you trusted in him as the only way to have a relationship with God, and at that time, you passed from spiritual death to spiritual life. You are living the spiritual, eternal life that God recreated you for in Christ Jesus right now. And he's given you good works to do. He's given you things to do. He just didn't put you on here to kill time until eternity. You got eternal life right now. You pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. And he has good works for us to do. What are those good works? Now, the best commentator commentary of Scripture is what? Scripture. So, if you want a great commentary on John chapter 5, verse 24, you turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Check this out. And uh, Paul is writing to believers. So he's writing to believers. He's telling them who they were and now who they are. For you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were spiritually dead. You're alive physically, but spiritually speaking, you were dead. Now, I've been to a few viewings in my life, and I have never seen a corpse move. You? If you have. Leave quietly right now. (laughs) Never seen a corpse lift a finger. Never seen a corpse say a thing. They're dead. And Paul says, spiritually speaking, you are the same way. You are a spiritual corpse in which you used to walk. Again, you are alive walking around physically, but you are a spiritual corpse, and you followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the power of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's who you used to be, not that anymore. Among whom, here's who you used to be, among whom you once lived, and in, in you followed the passions of your flesh, uh, carrying out the desires of your body and your mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But you're not that anymore. Look at the next verse, verse 4. But... God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he's the one. We didn't do it. We think we did it. But, he's, but we were spiritually dead. He's the one who made us alive together with Christ, the object of our salvation. He's the one who at a time and period breathed into us the breath of life, spiritual life. And when he did that, we said, oh, I believe. And then we thought we did it all. 
but we were a corpse. He breathed into us the breath of life, made us alive together with Christ, and he raised us up and he seated us in the heavenly places so that in the, so that in the coming age, you already, you already got all the benefits now, but in the coming age, you even see it more clearly, you can, he'll show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And now we get to that verse, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Not, not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not a work so that no one can boast. And then we get to our other verse, brings us right back to the question, doesn't it? For we are his what? Workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, the object of our salvation, to do good works or for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do so we could walk in them. All right, are you doing the good works? We're right back where we started. Are you doing the good works that God called you to do? How, do you, how, can you, how can you know that and how can you get them done? I got four things quickly to, to offer you. Number one, if you really want to know the good works that God has called you to do, then just ask him. Ask him to tell you. Ask him to show you. Prayer is simply conversation with God. It involves a speaker and a listener. And when we have this intimate relationship with God, remember we're his workmanship. He created these good works for us to do. He wants us to get them done. So just ask him, am I on the right track? Am I getting them done? You say, that's too easy. Nah, I don't know. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open. For whoever asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. Or, so Jesus, Jesus says, so let me give you an example so I, can let you, so I can drive this home. Let me give you an example with a father and a son. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Think about that. I'm hungry, your son says. I want some bread, and you give them a stone. Just think about that. How, how bad would that be? Or your grandkids. I got two grandkids waiting at home. I, I can't wait to cut this service short so I can get home and see them. <laughs> Just being transparent. That was one of the things you said. You wanted more transparency. I'm being transparent. <laughs> okay, I've lost my train here. We were on a, we were on a good roll. Which, you ask for bread, give him a stone, right? Or, or you ask for a fish, give him a serpent. You wouldn't think of doing that as a father, would you? Or a mother. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give you the good things to those who what? Ask him. So ask him. Got him on the right track. What are the good things you want me to do? Now, there are things you, we can help you as a tool. We have this book, Uniquely You, personalize, uh, Personalizing My Faith. Uh, you can get this online. Uh, you can order a copy. You can work through it. It helps show you that your, uh, your gift mix, your personality and your gift mix and how that works. Maybe that would help you. Maybe God would use this as a tool. Uh, uh, Living Grounded has a whole chapter in it, Finding the Will of God. Uh, Scott Keffer and Jack Keebler just taught a class on 
finding the will of God. So we got tools for it, but at the end of the day, God uses those tools to speak to you personally because you are his workmanship, and you, me, we've been created in Christ Jesus to do the things that God wants us to do. So ask him. Now, one of the things that you're going to do when you ask him is you're going to read his word. That's number two. Read God's word. When you read God's word, he will speak to you. By his spirit, his spirit lives in you. His spirit is the one who penned this through different authors. And so he knows what he wants you to hear. He knows what he's saying. And his spirit speaks to you as you read his word. Now, sometimes you read God's word and you say, I didn't get anything out of that. That's true. That's just the human condition. But if you read it consistently, God will speak to you through his word. Let me read you something. We've been talking about, just start with five minutes, five minutes in God's word. And you can, we have a devotional that we do. Uh, We're going to go through the gospels beginning January 1. We're going through the Psalms now. If you want to be on that list to get those on your phone or in your inbox, then you can fill this out. You can drop it in that same basket that you're going to drop your uh, um, um, January 14, 15, and 20 slips in. You can put it in there, and you'll get this. I, I, I record every Wednesday. I record these, and so you can hit the audible part, and you can listen to it. You can read it just five minutes. We can do it together. Five minutes in God's Word, 2019, okay? All right, so a guy sent me an email this week, uh, Roy Delisander. Listen to what he says. About 17 years ago, you issued a challenge to all the men in the congregation that wanted to be better husbands and fathers. I think it was on a Father's Day, and Tunch was going to pray with the guys, and so we said, all the guys come down. You ask us to step out and come forward, and there were so many that I could only make it about halfway down the aisle. Your challenge was to give God just five minutes a day, both to reading the word and in earnest prayer. I really did not know what I was getting into, but I thought that was the least I could give God. Prior to that, I would read the word for about a half hour here or there and pray about the same way, but now it was going to be every day, whether I had time or not. I must admit that from time to time I have relapsed. However, as a result of that five-minute challenge, I found myself doing 10 and 10, 10 minutes reading and 10 minutes in prayer. And soon, it got to be 15 and 15. And the more I prayed, this is the part I love, the more I prayed, the more people I found that needed prayer. How about that? And sometimes it is now an hour of reading and an hour in prayer. I discovered that the more I read and prayed, the more Satan attacked me from all sides, and I would slide back into the minimum and then build up all over again. That challenge is one of the best things I ever did. Had you asked for 15 and 15, I don't think I would have done it. But five and five, who can't give God at least 10 minutes a day? I can only say that's made a difference in my life and in my relationship with the one who gave himself for me. Please afford others the same opportunity you gave me 17 years ago. So we're doing that. We're still preaching the same thing in God's word every day. And again, if you want some help with that, if you're doing it on your own, fantastic. But if you want help with it, sign up and we will help you do that. All right. Number three, ask him. In God's word, number three, do something. Start doing something. I love what Dave DiDonato says. Dave DiDonato says, God speaks most clearly to a moving servant. So start doing something. 
You can pray for the global workers. There's opportunity to do that. A lot of you signed up last week. We appreciate that. Still more opportunity to do that. You can host an international student. Some of you signed up for that. Scott Boyd texted me this week and said, you can still use a few more. Sign up. We get information if you want to do that. Hosting a student in your home. We talked about that last week. But do something. Sometimes in finding the, the things God wants us to do, we first have to find the things he doesn't want us to do. I love talking to college kids. They say, I did that job. I hated it. And I say, that's fine. You didn't waste your time. Now you know what you don't want to do. So you can be about what God has for you to do. Last one, number four. When God shows you the direction to go in, go for it. And don't stop. Here's why I say that. I think a lot of times people, we believe, if God's in this, it's going to be easy, right? If God wants me to, if these are the good things that God wants me to do, that he prepared in advance for me to do, then, man, this is going to be like smooth sailing. No obstacles, no challenges. And that's just not true. Sometimes, for Jesus it was, wasn't it? The thing that God put Jesus on this earth was a pretty hard assignment. That's to put it, I don't even have words for that. So sometimes when you start out, it could be challenging, really challenging. Hard doesn't always mean wrong, and easy doesn't always mean right. In fact, a lot of times the easiest thing to do is the wrong thing to do. So when you start out doing the things God's calling you to do, keep doing it, even when it gets hard. And there may, it may be you won't know you won't see any fruit for years. I just was with those missionaries in Portugal and Spain. Man, they work over there. They don't see fruit for a long time. They don't see people come to Christ like you know other missionaries do in other parts of the world. But they keep at it. That's what God's called them to do day by day. Are you willing to do something today that you may not ever see the fruit of, but you know God's calling you to do it? So I tell you a quick story. I met with a guy this week. He's on a spiritual journey, and, and he told me a story about he's a pilot. One of the <clears throat> things he does is he's a pilot, and he told me a story that uh, he was flying um, a plane uh, from South Africa uh, to another part of uh, Mozambique, and he had the plane. It was a single-engine old military plane. Uh, some of you uh, Navy pilots probably would, would know exactly what, what it is, and he's flying this plane, and uh, one engine, and he has a, uh, you know, uh, hunters. He's, he's flying hunters to Mozambique to spend about a month there. And so he says he gets up, you know, in the altitude that he needs to, and, and uh, he's at a certain uh, altitude, and he cranks the engine, and he hears a weird sound, but, you know, doesn't think a thing about it. It's an old plane, so uh, he keeps going, and pretty soon he cranks the engine again, and just, it just explodes. He hears this explosion. The propeller uh, just stalls. It's just, it's just stuck. And uh, oil has just uh, all over his windshield. He can't even see out. And he said, you know, smart thing he did, he turned on the windshield wipers. Like that was going to help. And it just spread the oil even more. So he starts thinking, what do I do? Got a load of people. And the engine is, is stalled. The propeller is stuck. So he said there's some maneuver that he, when he teaches pilots, he teaches them not to do it because it's dangerous uh, and it can actually cause you to lose control of the plane. I think he called it si side, uh, side slipping. You can't see out 
the front, so he, he, he moved it to the side so he could look out the side window. And when he looked out the side window, he saw a dirt road in the middle of nowhere in the bush. And he thought, that's it. That's my only shot. So he maneuvered the thing around. Now, the dirt road, uh, before the dirt road, there was, a, there was a railroad track that went across it. So he knew if he hit the railroad track, the landing gear would catch on that and they'd be done. And then there were power lines right after the railroad. So he had to get this thing just, just perfectly on this dirt road. So that's what he did. Gets it on the dirt road. He said as soon as he got on the dirt road, as soon as the wheels hit, the road started turning. And so he had to crank the plane. Finally, the thing it came to a stop in a cloud of dust and smoke. And he said from the time he started yelling, mayday, 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 to the time he landed, it only took 46 seconds, but it felt like an eternity. So they get on the ground, and people from the area start gathering around to see what in the world happens. Now I'm reading from the email. I asked him to write out the story. I'm going to read the last part that he wrote. An elderly man made his way through the crowd and pulled me aside. It was clear to me that he was not healthy, and life had taken its toll on him. He held my arm and said he needed to tell me something. I quote, 30 years ago, God told me to build this road. I listened to God and built the road, he said, pointing to the road. He then asked me, do you know why God told me to build this road? I answered, no. Why did God tell you to build the road? He pointed to my chest and said, God told me to build this road because he knew that today you were going to need it. As he disappeared into the crowd, as strangely as he had appeared, I never saw him again. Would you be willing to build a road today that's not going to be needed for 30 years because that's what God placed you on this earth to do? You may not see the fruit right off the bat, but you know in your heart God told you to build a road. It may be for your kids. It may be for grandkids, some grandkids you may never see, or great-grandkids you may never see. But when God calls us to do the good things that he prepared in advance for us to do, he doesn't make mistakes. The roads he tells us to build, the paths he tells us to walk on, the trails he tells us to blaze are for his purposes, in his timing, in his will. And it may be 30 years from now. You may be in heaven. But someone's going to need what God has told you to build. We're going to have Susie and, and the, uh, some of the worship team come out and lead you in a, or, or just sing a song over us before we take communion. It's a song called... Uh, God of the hills and valleys. I'll tell you a quick story before, as they're coming out to sing the song. So <clears throat> there's a guy that was at the church about 10 years ago. I kind of lost track of him. His name was Jack Fuchs. And while he was here, he had a huge impact uh, in, in my life. Uh, he was a sharp guy, great leader. And uh, I met with him often uh, to get advice. Um, uh, Jack was very organized and he wrote out his own eulogy. And he had his... Uh, he told his grandson the, the password to his computer, and he said, when I die, all you need to do is go put the date in there. And uh, his grandson said that was the hardest thing he did, to go put that date in there when, when Jack passed away uh, at the end of November, November 30th. I won't read the whole um, eulogy, uh, but just listen to a, a couple things he says. 
Life presented to me, as it does to all, challenges and opportunities to surmount and overcome, to learn and to grow. It also presented detours and blind corners, unmarked dead ends, and washed out highways that terminated in deep abysses. As I walked through the valleys of the shadow of death and sometimes despair, I recalled and tested the words, the Lord is my shepherd, and found them not wanting. Strangely and unexpectedly, there were even times when I was allowed to climb up vista-lined slopes to the beauty of majestic mountains that reached for the heavens. Throughout all the twists and turns, the valleys and the mountaintops, there was always the question, why? Toward what end? The answer was always that I was exactly where I needed to be at that point in my life. 